Good morning, everybody. This is Dylan Greenwood. I'm Jessica Armantrout here at Family Law Attorney at Greenwood Law. And we're here to present For the Record with Greenwood Law. Uh, with us today, we've got Jonathan Vermitsky. Uh, we appreciate him being here. He's a partner over at Morrow, Porter, Vermitsky & Taylor, PLLC. <laughs> uh, we're here to talk today about uh, some unique aspects of the law here in North Carolina involving uh, something called heart bomb torts, uh, which are criminal conversation and alienation of affection. So, Jonathan, let's just get this out of the way. Is criminal conversation criminal? No, it's neither criminal nor is it conversation. In <laughs> fact, it's a euphemism that dates back to the old English law for the criminal conversation, which is just another word for adultery or sex outside of marriage. I gotcha. And there's been a pretty famous case of adultery here uh, in North Carolina or possible accusations of adultery here in North Carolina involving uh, uh, the Senate race that's been happening, uh, involving Cal Cunningham. And the way this came about, I think it was back on October the 3rd, uh, came out that some text messages had um, uh, been sent between Cal and another uh, female uh, who was married and has a uh, husband out in California. Uh, Jessica, does that in and of itself uh, create some sort of possible lawsuit or actionable claim? The text messages may have at first, depending on the nature of them, but that might have been a more shaky claim. But since then, I think it's come out that there was actually an act of adultery committed here in North Carolina, and that's kind of where it elevates it to a claim that her, her husband might have and a claim that Cal Cunningham's wife may in fact have against this woman that was here in North Carolina. So um, John has litigated a lot of these cases um, over his career here. He and I have even had one together. He's actually pioneered some of the constitutional issues about whether this tort in North Carolina can stand up to constitutional scrutiny, which was, I believe, freedom of expression is yeah, it was freedom of speech and then the 14th Amendment under Lawrence v. Okay. Texas, the right to sexual privacy. Um, uh, yeah, I think you're right. And I think what's interesting about these torts, is, as Jessica points out, and as Dylan points out, is they're incredibly broad. Um, you can make an allegation of alienation of affections for anything, any action that lowers the affection of one spouse for another. People think of adultery, which is the most common fashion, but you know these cases actually originated a lot of times within laws where the wealthy mother-in-law didn't want their son to marry the baker's daughter, right? And so they would do things like try and pay them off so they didn't run away and have to mm -hmm. pay a dowry to someone who didn't have any money. Um, so there's, there, it's quite a broad range of actions that can cause liability for these torts. So on alienation of affection, just that in and of itself, because I think a lot of people think of these laws as just being alienation of affection, just broadly. But alienation of affection doesn't actually have to have some sort of infidelity. That's correct. In fact, um, there are several cases in North Carolina courts where it's parents or coworkers or friends um, and have nothing to do with sex. But if you maliciously intrude in the protected relationship of a marriage, you can suffer the consequence of being sued for it. Now, to be fair, most of the cases do involve adultery. Mm -hmm. So. But that's where the possibility of criminal conversation can come in, isn't that right, Jessica? Yes, that is usually included as a, a second claim in that kind of lawsuit. Um, and so I guess probably the next question dealing with the Senate race here is after, you know, first it came out just the text, then it came out, okay, there was an act, 
Then it came out, she claimed, the, the woman that he had the affair with, claimed that she was separated from her husband at the time this happened. So what does that possibly do to her husband's claim that he might potentially have against Mr. Cunningham here in North Carolina? Well, that's, yeah, that's a great question. And, and it really, nowadays, if they were separated when the actions occurred and all the actions occurred after they were separated, there would be no liability. Um, the legislature actually changed that law. In the beginning of my practice, you were able to file for alienation of affections or criminal conversation until the day of divorce. They've subsequently changed it to where if the actions happen after you're separated, you can't go forward on it. Now, that being said, it's sometimes, as, as Jessica knows well, doing and, and Dylan doing as much domestic work as they do, sometimes it's quite difficult to determine when separation actually occurred. And just because you say you're separated may not actually mean you are. So mm -hmm. it would be an interesting issue to see when the timeline really fits with Mr. Cunningham. And what does that do to his, uh, Mr. Cunningham's wife potentially having a claim against this woman that allegedly had an affair with Mr. Cunningham here? Is it changed by the fact that this woman, I think, is a California resident? Um, it, so that's, that's another very good question, and, and it really depends on where the actions were directed. Um, there's case law here in North Carolina that if you have phone calls into this state or texts into this state, and there's a lot of them, and the, those conversations happen with at least one party here, it would still be actionable under the, what's called the long-arm statute in California. Now, that being said, that still makes it a little harder to attach the person and sue the person, and you may end up in federal court instead of state court, but um, it would still potentially be actionable. Criminal conversation, the sexual activity has to happen in North Carolina, and the cases are very clear on that point. So if, if they were more than texts. It would have had to have happened here. Otherwise, you may have an alienation claim, but not a criminal conversation. Okay. Okay. And a lot of times, these cases, there isn't necessarily that smoking gun of some sort of visual depiction, whether it be pictures, video, or what have you, of this sort of thing going on. A lot of times, these cases are built on circumstantial evidence. And a lot of people, when they hear the term circumstantial evidence, they think, oh my God, that's, that's not as good evidence. It's lesser evidence. But that's not necessarily true, is it? No, not at all. In fact, I think sometimes circumstantial evidence is, can be stronger than, than some direct evidence in a lot of circumstances. And frankly, it, it's pretty hard. Rarely does someone find actual proof in the form of a picture or a video of, of adulterous activity. It happens, but it's rare. But that being said, if you find two people who have amorous or you know, text to each other end up in a hotel at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when they're both supposed to be working, there's a pretty good chance you'd have both the inclination and the opportunity and, and you'd have a good claim there. But that's what you need. First you need inclination mm -hmm. and then you need opportunity. And a lot of times those pieces of circumstantial evidence build up to that inclination. So I think in relation to the Cal Cunningham issue, it's now come out that there have been some text messages that uh, get at the fact of um, uh, an action. I think one of them was in California and one of them is alleged to have occurred in North Carolina. So there was an action um, that was alluded to in these text messages and that would seem to possibly give an inclination. Yeah, and, and I think Jessica would probably agree with me with the many texts we've seen. This is probably <laughs> the worst text or sexting I've ever seen. Um, Mr. Cunningham really needs to up his game in terms of uh, sexual texts. But that being said, it's probably enough to at least suggest that they were interested in each other as more than just political colleagues or friends. Yeah. And so then the next step would just have to be to prove they had the opportunity to be alone together and this could have happened. Mm -hmm. That's correct. various ways they gather that information. So, I mean, when people come in here about it 
to us. They sort of suspect, I think my spouse is having an affair or they already, they know it, but they can't necessarily prove it. Mm -hmm. So people, we just talked about the proof people try and gather, there's videos and pictures. Sometimes people can go about that the wrong way and wind up in their own kind of trouble. So what kind of video or recording or what kind of evidence can you legally gather on your spouse that and what kind might get you in even worse trouble than what you were trying to get your sure. ex um ex's new lover in trouble for right. this is a and minefield yeah it, it really is and in north carolina well first thing you got to remember is that different states have different laws with regards to mm -hmm. wiretapping so what the rules are here in north carolina may be very different in california um, there are both federal and state wiretapping statutes and what they basically usually permit is they permit the recording of any conversation that you are a part of. Now, a couple states have a different rule we both have to know. Um, but they don't allow you to intercept information in the form of an email or a text message using some device and then to pull that somewhere else. Uh, that would be a traditional wiretap, which could be both civilly and criminally liable for. You're also not allowed to hack someone's password. Now, the law is a little unclear if you were given a password or if as we see sometimes the text message is mm -hmm. left open or the computer is left open and there's something there. But um, not only can you get in trouble, but sometimes that evidence will be not permitted to even be introduced in that instance. So, And depending on how you do it or how you effectuate it, uh, it could even be construed in North Carolina as a cyber stalking issue, which is a very serious misdemeanor here in North Carolina. Um, not to mention the federal implications, like you said, I think you know, a lot of times you can, um, you know, video um, is an avenue that you can go down, but then when you're recording uh, and trying to get the audio of what's going on, that can really be the issue uh, overall. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why I often recommend using a licensed private investigator to get your information because they know the laws, they're licensed by the state and the insurance company. Um, and therefore, there's a lot less liability than if you just try and go at it yourself. It's also, they're a lot better at it, frankly, than most yeah. of our clients tend to be. <laughs> right. So, so, but you could record, if you're in your own home, you could record a, a, part, a conversation that you're a part of, you know, with correct. your spouse. Mm -hmm. You catch them admitting, you confront them, they admit sure. it. Sure. What you, and correct me if I'm wrong, you can't do is set up a video camera in your house to catch audio of your spouse when you're not there, audio or video? I think video is okay. Um, well, there are some exceptions if you have a camera in your home for like protecting your children, like mm -hmm. a nanny camera or something like that. Uh, the classic, what you can't do is you can't set a recording device in your spouse's car mm -hmm. and then leave and then listen to those conversations. I think that would be a wiretap. It may also be in the home. Uh, it mm -hmm. depends on if you have a good faith reason to have it there other than to catch your husband or wife cheating Let's on bring you. Bring this on. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, those are, those are, you know, one of the things we see quite often is everything nowadays on a computer is there forever, um, generally, um, unless they take affirmative steps to destroy it. And a lot of times the cover-up's worse than the crime. So if you see a phone that's been wiped the day after they're accused of cheating, mm -hmm. jurors aren't stupid. Um, but we do use a lot of good forensic computer people that are able to recover things like text messages, emails, et cetera. And they also know the way to do it legally. If you're just joining us here on WTOB, uh, it's Dylan Greenwood here with Jessica Armantrout. Jessica is a family law attorney here at Greenwood Law. We also got Jonathan Verminski here, a family law attorney here locally at Morrow Porter, Verminski and Taylor. Uh, of course, we appreciate him being on board. And we're talking, we're talking about uh, alienation of affection and criminal conversation. 
uh, two uh, potential lawsuits that can come about for uh, people who uh, catch their spouse uh, cheating, uh, whether it be emotional or physically or otherwise. Uh, and we're talking about what all that adds up to and how you know that can happen. And the jumping off point we used is uh, the Senate race here with Cal Cunningham and how that may apply to these two statutes. A lot of times, you know, when these actions are brought, uh, they're brought, well, first of all, they have to be brought against the person that the spouse was cheating with. Mm -hmm. That's who is being sued. That's correct. And then everybody, you know, once they ask us, hey, can I sue them? Can I get after them? The next question is, well, how much? How much is it going to be? And damages in these cases are wide ranging. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, they can go up into the millions of dollars, can they not? They can. Um, we've seen verdicts in North Carolina as large as 10 and 11 million dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's been some, there's one back in 2018 that was 8.8 .8 million. There's one just a few months ago that was like 750,000. So I mean, just depending upon the circumstances and whatever else, you know, you might be able to recover a lot now. You know, something we all learned in law school is, well, yeah, you can, you can sue somebody, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to recover anything. Uh, people can, in fact, be judgment-proof, can they not, Jessica? Yes, and um, there's actually in some new issues with taxes on these awards. So once you receive the award, you get taxed on the full amount. You know, once you once you receive it, but they you even get taxed on the amount that you have to pay your attorney as well. So by the time you take all that out of it, what you're what you're going for better be worth your while because you've going to invest a lot of time and energy into these lawsuits and then you're going to pay taxes on that award, you're going to have to pay attorney part of it. So building the case that we've been talking about and building it the correct way would be very important to that. Um, one other thing I did want to talk with you about, John, is kind of that, to use a criminal law term, aggravating factors mm -hmm. that might make or inflame a jury a little bit more toward right. a defendant. And so I guess kind of the ones I thought of were if, if you're a friend, if you knew the person, like somebody's sleeping with your, your husband's best friend and the best friend looks a whole lot worse. Um, if you have a lot of children mm -hmm. or you know, a few children that's kind of left them in a lurch, if you're a dependent spouse, how much you flaunted the affair, those sound about right? Absolutely. I, I, I tell a lot of people when I talk to them about these cases, think of it this way. People hate going to jury duty. It's boring. No one wants to hear two people argue over a contract or a car wreck or someone having a broken neck. But there's a reason why people have watched soap operas for the last 75 years, okay? <laughs> people are interested in sex, they're interested in cheating, they're interested in deception and jealousy. So these cases are much more driven by the personalities of the plaintiff and defendant. And if you think of all the typical stereotypes, you know, the, the attractive 20-year-old secretary who steals the, you know, 65-year-old uh, husband who's wealthy, who has a long-suffering wife at home, you know, obviously that's going to be more uh, lucrative in terms of punitive and other damages. Same is true, like you said, with children. Um, but then there's also things that I think go the other way. I mean, we had a case one time where it was an alienation case, and, and my client clearly had done things he wasn't supposed to do. But the husband was abusive. He was mm -hmm. physically abusive. He beat his wife. And if you think a jury is going to give someone who beats their wife any money because she went out and slept with another man, you just, you're just crazy. It's not the way the world works. So they are, there are things like that that I think influence the value dramatically. The other one we just talked about earlier is 
how much the person has to lose by the lawsuit becoming public. I mean, we see a lot mm -hmm. of cases that never end up in a courtroom involving doctors or, or if, for example, and again, I'll, I'll preface this with, I only know what I've seen in the news about the Cal Cunningham situation. I don't think any of us profess Absolutely. to know what really yeah. happened. But that being said, if something like that happens with a political figure, a lot of these cases have more value before you file them for the fact that they're not made public for mm -hmm. certain public figures, you know, whether they be business people or, or, you know, doctors or lawyers or, you know, religious folks. I've had several involving pastors and ministers and things like that. Um, so, yeah, those are things that can definitely drive the value. But the biggest driver of value, in my opinion, is the size of the marital estate. Because yes. if mm. you think about it, you lose half your stuff when you get divorced, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? And if you have more stuff, then you have more to lose. And it's kind of like I think of it like the medical bills in a car wreck case. So mm -hmm. I think that's a big driver of value in these cases. Absolutely. If you're just joining us here on WTOB, it's Dylan Greenwood of Greenwood Law, uh, John Verminski here, and Jessica Armantrout, family law attorney at Greenwood Law. Uh, and we've been talking about uh, heart balm torts in North Carolina, criminal conversation, alienation of affection, uh, and how they apply uh, when you found, find out that a spouse is cheating, because uh, they are ways that uh, potentially lawsuits can come about against the person that they are cheating with. And yeah. So I think we had mentioned something earlier about this, about federal court, about this kind of case ending up in federal court. So given that it's a state law, John, how does this necessarily end up in federal court? Um, I know you've been a pioneer on this <laughs> issue in the court system, and I know you have taken it to federal court and yeah. um, pioneered the constitutionality issues of it. So I was. How does it get to federal court if it's a state law? Well, to put it, the, the simplest way to put it out is there's two ways to get to federal court for a claim. The first is if it's a federal statute. Mm -hmm. um, alienation is not a federal statute. There's a second way called diversity of citizenship. And so if you have a plaintiff in one state and a defendant in another state and they're residents of different states, the defendant or the plaintiff, depending on who does it, can remove that case or bring that case in federal court. Now, interestingly, the federal court will apply the law of the state of North Carolina, um, except for certain procedural issues. And we've, we've had quite a few in, in, in the western, middle, and eastern district. And uh, the uh, constitutional issue has been decided partially um, in the trial courts, but has never been decided in a federal appellate court. We, we almost made it to Richmond in the Fourth Circuit one time, but then we ended up resolving the case. So. We'll see if it gets there. Mm -hmm. So does that mean potentially, like in the Cal Cunningham situation, does that mean he could be facing a lawsuit in California or somewhere else in North Carolina in federal court? Yes. Um, so if the husband of the alleged paramour lives in California, as the plaintiff, they can choose their venue. Now, they would have to bring it in the federal court in North Carolina. Um, I believe Mr. Cunningham is native to Lexington, North Carolina, if I remember correctly. I know his father's a very fine lawyer down there. Um, so he would be in the middle district of North Carolina here in Greensboro. You mm -hmm. could file it. Now, alternatively, if they filed it in North Carolina in the state courts, Mr. Cunningham could remove the case to federal court, which is take it from state court and move it to federal court. And I should add, not only do they have to be in different states, but the damages have to be alleged to be more than $75,000. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. normally, in these types of claims, you would allege that at the beginning, mm -hmm. and so it would, it would meet the requirements of jurisdiction. Um, 
And so once you, let's, let's say you're a defendant in this case and you are guilty, what possible defenses to this claim do you have? Sure, that's, that's a great question. So there are actual defenses and then there's the real world defenses. Um, <laughs> so the actual defenses are only two, um, unless it's outside the statute of limitations, which we talked about earlier. The only two defenses are what we call condonation and connivance. Um, condonation is where your spouse learns about the affair forgives you and continues the marital relationship. And, and that is a complete defense if you can prove it. Um, but it does require a complete forgiveness of the affair, which is often difficult to prove. Would that um, also kind of be if someone had an open marriage? Yes, that's a great example. Um, because in that instance, then there's permission. And permission would be a defense to alienation of affections. That's, that's a good point. Um, connivance is much more rarely seen, but that's where you actually set the person up. So that would be where, again, not that this happened, but if the woman in California had worked with her husband or some third party for the detriment of Mr. Cunningham and set up this affair and enticed him to engage in these texts, et cetera, for some monetary or other purpose, that's what we call connivance, mm -hmm. and that's also a complete defense. Um, the more common defenses you see to alienation of affections, although not a complete defense, is to talk about the other problems in the marriage. Uh, and this is quite common where a marriage breaks up for a different reason. Let's say they don't even know about the affair. And two parties break up because one party has an issue with alcohol or money or just they grow apart. If they later find out about the affair, a defense would be, well, I'm not the reason this marriage ended. It was a bad marriage to begin with, mm -hmm. so I shouldn't have to pay as much. But that is a defense to the amount of damages. It's not a complete defense like the other two. Is that getting at the fact that there's, I know part of the statute or part of the elements of these is that there's like a loving and effectual, mm -hmm. affectionate marriage. Now, the courts, I think, have recognized that as a kind of a low standard. Extremely low. Uh, it's, if it's just barely there, it counts. Correct. Uh, but is that kind of what it's driving at? It is. I mean, the requirements for alienation of affections is there's a marriage of love and affection that's wrongfully intruded upon by a third party, causing a diminishment of affections. Um, in theory, I guess you could say there's a marriage with no love and affection, but our courts, as you've noted, have said that as long as one spouse says there was some love and affection, it counts. So very rarely will a plaintiff sue and then say, but we didn't have any love and affection. Mm -hmm. And everybody has pictures or honeymoon cards, I mean, anniversary cards, things like that, so, yeah. So those are the two major heart bomb torts, the alienation of affection and criminal conversation. And we can touch on one more very briefly, which is a uh, breach of promise to marry. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the last man standing, I guess, of these in mm -hmm. North Carolina. North Carolina is one of the few states that still allows these torts. Um, so the, you ever had one of the breach we of? Breach your promise to marry? We have. I, I've had a couple through my career. Um, and just recently, um, my wife, my law partner, Natalie, filed one um, for a breach of the promise uh -huh. to marry. And traditionally, they are filed in an instance where you're basically left right before the wedding and you incur substantial mm -hmm. financial damage and paying for it, setting it up, et cetera. Um, but, you know, they view marriage like a contract, just like anything else. And if you. And ate, weddings are expensive. They sure are. Especially um, nowadays. Right. And, and, and so the, the only limitation they've made is that you can't, if you're the mother or father of the bride and you shell out the money, you're not allowed to sue for the breach of promise. You've <laughs> got to actually be the agreed spouse or yeah. potential spouse. Yeah. And that would be like, it's not even just the wedding, maybe they own property together sure. and then they have to sort out how that works. Mm -hmm. And, the whole and actually, for the emotional yeah. damage as well, um, people can. 
it's one of the few quote-unquote contract actions where you can sue for emotional harm. And uh, like you said, it is alive and well. They tried to get rid of it about two years ago here in North Carolina, and our courts of appeals said, nope, these still exist. Yep. Mm -hmm. so, so. so you get the ring back that way, or does that? That's always the <laughs> question, right? You can. If you're, if you're the in the traditional sense, and of course things are different with different couples, but if the man gives the engagement ring and spends a whole bunch of money on a nice big fat rock and she leaves you a day before the altar, you can sue to get your money back. You sure can. <laughs> um, again, not typically done, but it can happen. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us here today so that we could talk about all these issues surrounding these heart balm torts here in North Carolina. In fact, North Carolina is one of the only states left that even has these. How many are even remaining? I think it's six right now. I think there's only two where it's done regularly, uh, pretty much just us in Mississippi, where they're still filed regularly. Illinois just got rid of it um, just recently, statutorily. Uh, so, and Hawaii, I think, still has a couple that are filed out there, mm -hmm. but very few. Is, is there anything on the horizon making us think it's going anywhere? I think that if it's going to change at this point, it's going to have to change through the legislature. Gotcha. And uh, I don't think there's been, they were one vote away at one point about 15 years ago from getting rid of it, but I don't think that we're there in terms of the makeup of our legislature. So. And thank you so much for having me, both of you. I appreciate yeah. it. Absolutely. Thank you for coming. And don't forget to join us next Sunday here on WTOB, 1030 a.m. for For the Record with Greenwood Law. Uh, typically, second chances in the law don't really come easy. However, North Carolina has passed an expanded Second Chance Act this summer that could give that opportunity to millions. In fact, it's estimated that the Second Chance Act could affect one in every four North Carolinians. So what is it? It's a way for nonviolent felonies and misdemeanors to be removed from your record. Uh, so tune in next week as we talk about the Second Chance Act and how you may qualify for relief. But before we go, do not forget the Greenwood Law Bill of Rights and that is first and foremost, I will not represent myself in court. Second, I will not do law enforcement's job for them. Third, I will not make statements when stopped by law enforcement. Four, I will not consent to searches when asked by law enforcement. And five, I will not be my own star witness for the prosecution. Remember everyone, it's not a crime to know your rights. Stay informed, stay safe. This is For the Record with Greenwood Law signing off.